Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest. With me to look ahead to next week's by-election triple header, what it means for political parties' fortunes as we head into Parliament's summer break, is Salma Shah, former government special advisor, and Robert Ford, professor of political science at the University of Manchester. And starting with you, Rob, obviously voters go to the polls next week in Uxbridge and South Ryslip in, in West London after Boris Johnson resigned his seat there. In Selby and Ainsley in North Yorkshire, where Nigel Adams uh, resigned his seat. Uh, and Somerton and Frome in Somerset, where David Warburton uh, stood down after allegations against him. And, you know, just looking at it now, could, you know, could Rishi Sunak have a more of an electoral headache, given that he's now got to defend a blue wall southern seat, a suburban seat and also a northern heartland seat all on the same day? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good way of, of framing it. It's, it's three very different kinds of targets. Uxbridge has been drifting away from the Conservatives for a while in terms of its demographic mix. And probably there's a larger than average personal vote there because of Boris Johnson being the MP. It's the kind of seat we would very much expect to fall at the next general election. So it, there, in a sense, Sunak has helped because expectation is very much that Labour should win it. But there is the kind of local complication of the ultra-low emission zone, which makes the Labour incumbent mayor unpopular. So an upset can't be ruled out, and that would be very, very good news for Sunak and what is a key battleground seat. Then Selby and Ainsley, somewhat the other way around, in that you know that's not a seat that we would expect to fall to Labour at the general election. It requires a, an 18.5-point swing. So if Starmer doesn't take it, he can point to that. If he does take it, it will potentially be the biggest conservative majority that Labour have ever overhauled in a by-election bigger than even Blair achieved in the mid-late 90s. So that that would be a big, big psychological boost for Labour. And then Somerton and Frome, before the coalition, that was kind of Lib Dem heartland territory down there. They held that seat for 18 years uh, from 97 onwards. So it would be a big morale boost for Ed Davey to recover it because they completely tanked there after coalition and hadn't really made a big recovery hitherto. But of course, in this parliament, their by-election performances have been extremely strong. Mm. Yeah, Samuel, so Sunak could become the first Prime Minister, I think, since Howard Wilson in 68 to lose three seats in a by-election on the same day. You know, have you kind of seen the the way that the Tories have tried to fight that? There's a bit of defeatism in some areas. Have you kind of made of the messaging so far since, they, since these three by-elections were announced? So I think that clearly there's going to be that very bog standard expectation management. Oh, you know, we know it's going to be hard and you've heard this from the Prime Minister. Oh, you know, 13 years into a government. That's yeah, stuff. this is going to be really difficult. And that in itself is quite interesting because there's expectation management and then there's there's being defeatist, which is the word that you've used. I think it's very hard and there's a real sort of nuance in the language that you have to use. Because if you don't, if you don't get that balance right, then it's like a banking crisis. It's contamination and contagion. And if that starts to spread, then we're looking at possibly quite a long run to the next general election. And the sort of trend is not looking good and it will just get worse because he can't shore everybody up. Now, in terms of messaging, I think it's really interesting because depending on how the results go, Three losses, let's just, let's make a, a wild prediction and say it's going to be three losses. Yeah. As with the local elections, it is now a question really of how much is Starmer winning by? And I think you set it out correctly, which is there's three different seats, there's three different places, there's all that tactical voting at play, there's, you know, how do you transpose the by-election results and a potential general election results, which is really a fool's game, but, you know, we'll have fun trying to do that anyway. Indeed. It's going to be in the nuance of how much is Starmer winning by. It's going to be the way that the Tories have to try and 
contain some of this scariness. Yeah, Rob, there was obviously in the May local elections, there was that briefing beforehand that the Tories could lose at worst a thousand council seats. And that was the kind of expectation manager. That was the worst possible thing. And then they dipped, they managed to dip below that very low bar that they'd set themselves. I suppose there is that kind of risk that by sort of briefing that they're going to lose all three of these, they then do. And that kind of, as, as Salma says, is kind of self-fulfilling that you, you end up going into the summer on this very downbeat sort of note for the party. That's true. Although unlike the locals, they can't brief that they're going to lose three and then lose four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, not unless unless Nadine Doris resigns. Uh, uh, Again, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so they've set their expectations at, at the basement level. There's no, there's no lower to go. But I think the what they haven't necessarily briefed in concrete terms, but will be important to watch is the scale of the defeats as well. If they lose Uxbridge narrowly. That would probably be encouraging for a lot of um, MPs in the sort of greater London southeast area. It would suggest that their vote is holding up in that part of the world. At the other end of the scale, if they were to lose Selby heavily, well, then there would start being very few Conservative MPs left who would be safe from the kinds of swing that that would imply. Similarly, a really big victory for the Lib Dems in Somerton and Frome would potentially bring quite a lot of apparently safe-looking blue wall seats into the frame. So it's not just win-loss. Of course, win-loss tends to be what frames the news reports the next day. It's also the scale uh, of the defeat. But I think we shouldn't rule out the possibility that they hold on to at least one of these seats. Probably Selby is the likeliest because it does require a record-breaking swing for it to happen. And if the expectations have crystallised that, that it's just going to be a triple defeat, then that will enable them to kind of spin what is in fact a pretty negative result. A narrow victory in Selby would mean a big, big swing against them as not as bad as it could have been. So the sort of setting expectations extremely low didn't work in the local elections. It could still work this time, though. I think that's really interesting analysis. I think the only thing that I would say is that Somerton and Froome, part of what we have to analyse there is the departing MP. Yeah. Just as Boris Johnson has a strong personal vote there, you know, there is kind of like a, a, a an individual's personal antics, for want of a better phrase, mm. that that is in play there. So I think there there are some things that may buck the trend or explain why there may be a Lib Dem victory there. But I don't want to start sort of you know spinning <laughs> spinning the light on my yeah. my old hat on already. No, no, but that's you're right. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to someone to frame and the kind of the but in a sense it's it's similar to the Tiverton by election last yeah. year. The kind of local candidate resigning in in disgrace and and the Lib Dems kind of coming up and, and taking that big one. But to go back to to Uxbridge. Uh, where we were sort of the first, the first one, Boris Johnson's also, as you say, yeah, Boris Johnson, he booked the trend a bit in 2019. It was seen as a big target for Labour and his vote went up. I suppose he, as Prime Minister then, he was at the height of his popularity. He's not as popular now. It does feel as though the, the, the Tories selected quite a safe candidate, Steve Tuckwell, who's a local councillor and stuff. And, but then feels though resources are being pushed up to Selby, as, as Rob says, that's the one they might hold on to. But, you know, with the London mayoral election next year, it could be seen as a kind of a referendum on ULES, the ultra-low emission stuff, and a referendum on Sadiq Khan, who's not been as popular in his second term. So you know, maybe it's wrong for the Conservatives to give up on, on Oxbridge when there is a chance to kind of get some political capital back by, by, by doing well in that seat. Yeah, the, th- the thing is, giving up on seats or resourcing seats, it's not as straightforward as people think. I mean, you will always get candidates and, you know, local campaigns sort of complaining about where CCHQ is putting the resource. Yeah, 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 but of course, sometimes yeah. it's actually, it's a question of need and not just always a question of where we want to go hardest. And, 
you're right. The fact that it's running in tandem with the Conservatives selecting a mayoral candidate, Sadiq becoming increasingly unpopular, I think there is a question there as to whether a lot of the London MPs are galvanising because they have a target in Sadiq Khan. And Uxbridge doesn't need the same level of coordination. I mean, quite often London seats and London constituencies are pretty well organised just by the nature of the fact that they're in the capital and they've had a a former prime minister as their previous MP. So I think we have to think about those differently in terms of the characteristics of the campaigns that are behind it. Rob, just just on um, on Oxbridge, obviously the I think the census from last year is just the population in that area has become younger, more educated and more diverse, which are kind of all indicators perhaps of, of rising Labour support. But then Labour didn't do that well in the most recent council elections and, and the candidate Danny Beals for Labour has got himself into a bit of a, a mess over supporting ULES or not supporting ULES as, as he now is? How do you kind of see those kind of factors into the by-election? Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say is it's really important to remember that, that, that this kind of local issue like ULES, there have been a number of by-elections over the years that, that haven't behaved in terms of uh, national trends because some local issue has emerged that's really got local voters sort of hopping mad and then then the seat behaves quite differently to others. Yeah, we, we talked before, we came on, didn't we, about Chesham and Amersham and the HS2 stuff with the Lib Dems managed to, the local candidate latched onto that, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think there's also another... Um, potential X factor here, which you see also, you see it in the local elections in Hillingdon, which is uh, Uxbridge areas, but you also see it in uh, the local elections in in Harrow. These were parts of London where Labour did not perform anywhere near as well as it did in most of the rest of London's local elections. And one potential factor there is that one of the largest ethnic minority groups in those areas is often Indian voters. And they have... it seems potentially maybe showing more interest in the Conservative Party than other ethnic minority groups. And of course, one factor in that could be the fact that we have, um, you know, the, the nation's first uh, Indian heritage prime minister right now. Now, Oxbridge and South Isaac is in terms of ethnic diversity as a whole, one of the most ethnically diverse seats that the Conservatives still hold. So on that basis, we would expect it to be a, a struggle for them to hold on to it because they tend to do worse amongst all ethnic minority groups than amongst white voters. But if we are starting to see the Indian group shift in a Tory direction, then that in turn could produce a pattern of results that's rather different to to what we might see in another London seat. And that is indeed what we saw in the locals. So there's a very local specific factor and there's a very local specific demographic factor, both of which could make this seat behave a bit surprisingly. Rob, can I just ask a question? Do you think that that culturally that kind of ethnic block voting still exists generally, you know, across the electoral map? Well, 10, 12 years ago, Lord Ashcroft did a report where he said, if you wanted to know how someone was going to vote, the first question you would ask is their ethnic heritage, because every single ethnic minority group rejected the Conservatives at far higher rates than white voters do. That is still true for every single ethnic minority group. However, there is a lot of diversity within that mix. So if you're looking at, say, black African voters, they can often be 80 to 90 percent. Labour. If you're looking at Indian heritage voters, they're more 45 to 55 percent in the last data that we have that's reliable, maybe lower now. Um, And and that's of those who vote. Yeah. So I don't like the term ethnic block voting because I I don't think that they're voting consciously as a block. But I think uh, all of the ethnic minority communities have had various reasons for, for viewing the Conservative Party with a greater degree of suspicion, perhaps, than white voters did. It is quite possible that that is starting to erode and it may well erode faster for some groups like Indians than for other groups. 
Right, before we move north out of London up to, up to North Yorkshire, just on the Labour side, obviously, you know, Labour didn't even win in 1997 in the sort of the Blair era. So it would kind of be, it's a really important marker, I suppose, if you're Keir Starmer on that kind of path to power. Is that kind of why you think they'll be throwing a lot of resources at it? We've seen Steve Reid is very close to Keir Starmer there, running the campaign, doing a lot of the interviews in place of the actual candidate to try and get that sort of message across. You know, how do you see that for, for Labour's point of view? You know, doing interviews in place of the candidate is such a telltale sign, isn't it? And you know, even The Guardian sort of reporting that Labour's throwing the kitchen sink at it. So they're really desperate. And, you know, I, I'm so old. I remember back when, when David Cameron was winning his first by-election. So I remember what that kind of energy is like. Momentum and you want to carry into an election, So right? the momentum you want to carry into an election, but also the sort of noses that you put out of joint on the ground as well, because there'll be this you know, parliamentary, well, sorry, constituency sort of um, office for Labour who are going to be sort of overwhelmed by Labour HQ. Obviously, he needs to show that he can reach those voters. And I think there's going to be some critical things that critical national factors that will have an impact. The economy is is going to be one of those. Inflation is hitting those people who would never really have thought about going anywhere other than conservative, but actually they are feeling it in their pocket. And the thing that's going to come out for a lot of these people is, could we do any worse if we had a Labour MP? And because it's a by-election, because it doesn't look like it's going to have an impact on what's going to happen in the national government, perhaps there's going to be a little element of protest vote that also, you know, rears its its head occasionally on, on locals. Mm. But obviously, the prevailing issue is that Labour really need this gain. And Keir is not without his detractors on his parliamentary backbenchers as well in the same way that Rishi Sunak has has that same issue so they need to win it they need to show the momentum to solidify their own position basically yeah and to, and to kind of like to justify some of the moves they're making in terms of central con- controlling a lot of the candidate selection that sort of stuff if you if it works if you're then winning those seats then it kind of justifies the me- the ends justify the means yeah and sense. you know there, there's he's always going to have that issue with the hard left we've always had our issue with the hard right sort of peeling away and he needs to be able to show that he is a winner and then you know perhaps that is going to lead to some kind of deal across the board with the Lib Dems you know if he does actually want to create that coalition without having a formal coalition yeah. although if he wins if he's winning seats like Selby and Ainsley he probably won't need to, to form, a, form well, a coalition exactly so then what happens what happens and what position do the Lib Dems take yeah. that is going to be much more pertinent I think when it comes around to the next general election yeah so, so going on to the Selby one from from Keir Starmer to his his namesake Keir Mather who's the, the candidate he's just 25 he'd be the youngest MP in the Commons if he if he wins that seat Rob you mentioned the kind of the swing that it would, would look like for, for Labour just talk us through some of the numbers in terms of you know this obviously seat was the seat was only created in 2010 so it's n- it's only ever been Tory hasn't it so then talk us through the numbers and, and what it would need for Labour to to pinch that off the off the Conservatives well I mean it's an 18 and a half point swing required to take the seat which would put it in amongst the largest ever swings that Labour have ever achieved in winning a seat off the Conservatives in a by-election. In terms of the raw vote majority overturned, I think it would be the biggest ever achieved. So it would make Keir Starmer into a a record-breaker in that respect. It may be a slightly less steep challenge than it appears in that the predecessor seat to this, which was just Selby, that, that was Labour in 1997 to 2005, I think, possibly. So the peak Blair years, this was an area that has experienced Labour MPs, or most of it have, has experienced Labour MPs. So I think why this is very valuable is 
Labour have a really big mountain to climb in terms of securing a majority next time, at least. Being a minor- minority government, much easier, but to, to secure a majority, they need a bigger swing than in 1997. So if you're the Labour leader, you want to be achieving record-breaking swings in by-elections. You want to be able to turn around to your critics and say, I'm as good as Blair, if not better, in terms of how I'm performing in elections. To Up, up to this point, that hasn't been true for Starmer. He's done pretty well in by-elections since Partygate broke, he did pretty poorly in by-elections before it did. Like Hartlepool, for example, yeah. This would take performance, Labour performance to, to, to the next level if they were to take this seat. And it would be the kind of performance that would compare favourably with what Blair was achieving in 95 and 96 uh, and so on. And that would then make it a lot easier to manage the internal politics because it's very hard to criticise something that's delivering such outstanding results as that. So I think there are some some strong stakes there. If they fall narrowly short, it would still be an extremely strong performance, but winning really does matter. So I can see why they're throwing the kitchen sink at it, because I think they'd be very frustrated if they achieve like a 16-point swing, which would be yeah. the majority territory, very, very strong. But everyone would be like, oh, well, you didn't take it, did you? Right, yeah, it's much harder to spin that. Oh, we, we achieved the sort of swing that would win us a majority, but we didn't actually win this seat in, yeah. in the first place. Yeah, I suppose so. So much looking back, like expanding out on this, this is a by-election that didn't necessarily need to happen. Like, there are some of the by-elections that have to happen if the candidate dies or they're forced to leave. Nigel Adams effectively resigned in a sort of a bit of a fit of peak because he wasn't able to get a peerage in Boris Johnson's resignation honours list. If you were in number 10, I imagine you'd be quite annoyed at having to fight this by-election, especially given the kind of the, the markers that it might send if you were to, to lose it. Since leaving government four years ago, I've become a bit of an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at it a different way. Actually, Rishi Sunak's lost a detractor from his backbenchers and potentially has been able to replace them with somebody that could be positive. Like that's the case, you know, if they win. Yeah. If he doesn't, Keir Starmer's got a 25-year-old on his backbenches that's going to be brand new, that's going to kind of, you know, have to kind of make a show of kind of what Labour's going to do. With this, the is new very this is very optimistic. So, but you, but you have to be. Yeah, you I suppose have, so. You know, it, it, we, we know the trend is bad, right? But if you're a practitioner and you've then got to go out and sort of get a campaign and get your troops motivated and all that kind of stuff, you do have to ha- have some kind of like sense of delusion. So this is not about the sort of metrics, the numbers, you know, all the, the brilliant stuff that Rob's been talking to you about. It's about the psychology that has to sit behind it. Yeah. Yes, of course, it's going to be annoying that they, they're having to fight these by-elections. But we are litmus testing. We are still a long way from a general election in, you know, campaigning terms. And there are opportunities now for Rishi Sunak to try and reset and recalibrate what he wants to do because he has this widespread of seats to try and understand what the electoral picture is. So he can course correct here. And I think that's what they need to take from this because the results are not going to be fantastic. The expectation management is there. It does look like a downward trajectory, but, you know, in in the most American corporate way, you know, what are the learnings? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Anyway, we'll come on to what kind of like whether it's sort of a referendum on the five priorities and, and that kind of stuff, how, how they kind of they frame that going forward. But we're bouncing around the country. We'll move down to down to Somerset now. And, and Rob, just talk us through uh, Somerton and, and from that, that by-election down there. Yeah, well, th- this is now the third party's big story because this was a seat that, was, that the Lib Dems took in the 1997 landslide election. There were quite a number of seats that the Lib Dems took in that election and then held 
through till the end of coalition in 2015. This is one of them. This is a chance for the Liberal Democrats to kind of move on from their 2015 trauma. This is one of those seats where their vote absolutely crashed to earth, haven't really recovered since. There's a kind of worry, I think, in Lib Dem circles that they've that the experience of coalition sort of salted the earth in parts of the country like this down in the southwest where they had long-standing traditional support. And they can't ever get their seats back, yeah. right? And these are not places where the embrace of Remain in a second referendum helped because they're quite leave-leaning. But, you know, if you go back earlier in time, these are places that have a long-standing, very long-standing liberal tradition. So if they win seats like this, and particularly if they win seats like this strongly in by-elections, that will make an awful lot of Lib Dem members and activists and MPs very optimistic about the prospects of returning a kind of large pre-coalition style cohort of 30, 40, 40 plus MPs after the next general election. Because in order to really achieve those kinds of gains, rather than another false dawn, they do need some big swings in seats that have a kind of historical liberal sympathy. So they'll be watching this one very, very closely because a, a really strong result for them here will raise hopes that they can really uh, resurrect themselves in parts of the country where coalition really, really put them out of business. Mm. My, my colleague Zoe Crowther was down there this week doing a report from the from the constituency and found that you know there was very little support for the Tories and as we saw with Tiverton Hanson, the kind of local candidate resigns in disgrace and the Lib Dems kind of come through and, and win that. But from the Conservative point of view, it's another seat in the kind of um, the blue wall. Yeah. And so again, it's 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 fighting that rearguard action on two fronts, I suppose, is going to seem quite difficult for the Conservatives going forward. How do you, you know, how do you set a policy ahead of the next election? How do you set a manifesto that can help you hold on to the blue wall and the red wall at the same time? Or do you think they should just say, right, well, this is a, a constituency we were always bound to lose in a by-election and we shouldn't take too much stall from it? Yeah, I mean, this is hard, isn't it? And when we came back with this astonishing majority in 2019... It was that kind of coalition, electoral coalition that was head, held together you know, quite weakly because it was about getting Brexit done. Yeah. And so we always knew that there was going to be some kind of, you know, split at some point. But Boris Johnson was always aiming to have kind of like levelling up and, you know, great economic legacy and all that to talk about. And so, we, you know... The sort of cakeism of, of being able yeah. to support both sides. Yeah. We, we all know what happened. It's, it's not been great. Let's just put that mildly. So we're now suffering the consequences of it. I think what's really interesting about this is that, you know, David Cameron's team was always incredibly edgy about what was going to happen in the Southwest with the Lib Dems. And so we always knew that we were vulnerable. And now the expectation with the Red Wall is that, you know, a lot of that's going to go. What is this going to change, not just in terms of manifesto and policy, but in terms of electoral strategy? Yeah. Are the Conservatives, as a result of this, going to go core vote and basically say actually the red wall was never going to be something that we were going to hold on to in the long term actually what we need to do is keep more of what is our traditional base so build more of a 2015 sort of coalition than a 2019 exactly but interesting then how do you set a housing policy that Theresa villiers and simon clark can both stand on at the same time 
Yeah, but that's not about building consensus, is it? <laughs> yes. So you're never going to solve the housing policy if you're going to try and make it sort of something that all parliamentarians can agree on. Because until sort of a Theresa Villiers understands the economic imperative, the national economic imperative, it's not going to budge. Right. And then you have to be a smarter about where you apply that policy. So is it going to be at a planning level, which everybody talks about, including Labour at this point? And let me tell you as somebody who has expertise in housing policy everybody's tried it everybody keeps going on about changing the bloody planning framework (laughs) it never does anything right yeah or you could be smart and talk about it at a demand level and do something like help to buy but constrict it in a way that doesn't cost the earth which is what the problem always was with help to buy and overheat the and and so and create different kinds of demand policies as opposed to supply which actually puts people like Theresa Villiers' nose out of joint because she's got a constituency makeup that can't take that kind of pressure or that, that infrastructure pressure. So those are the kinds of ways that you can think about it, but you're never going to find that kind of consensus. You either choose to be radical or you don't. And the, the, the issue here now is that everybody is struggling with housing. It's not a people with higher incomes versus people with lower incomes. It's much more universal. Yeah. Uh, so, Rob, just kind of on that then, you know, we're talking about the, the, the strategy that we're going forward, from a kind of polling point of view, how would you see that? What would be the most expedient strategy if you were in the Conservative, you know, CCHQ deciding what seats to kind of focus on? Is it better to try and keep the 2019, as many 2019 seats as possible, or to try and retrench a little bit and hold on to those 2015 seats and try and at least be the largest party in Parliament after the next election? I I think the Conservatives have a a really deep dilemma on this, actually, because if you look at the short-term changes in polling, so the changes since, say, Partygate broke in autumn 2021, Labour have built most of their gains on less well-off Brexit-leaning people and places. So they've they've bridged the Brexit divide to some extent. They've refocused the election on economic issues and unhappiness with the incumbent. And that points to, you know, some some really big defeats in the Red Wall. And that would suggest, well, maybe we need to go with, as, as, as Samuel puts it, a, a core vote strategy, you know, retreat back to the south of England heartlands. The problem is if you take a longer term lens and look at changes since Brexit, since 2016, it's those southern heartland areas that have seen the biggest relative underperformance for the Conservatives. In 2019, for example, you had double-digit declines in Conservative support in most of the seats in Surrey or Hampshire or Hertfordshire, Sussex, these parts of the world. They had such a high Conservative majority that it didn't sort of matter. Yeah, yeah. so it, it all cushioned out, which, which is a kind of mirror image, ironically, of what happened in the Red Wall before the Red Wall fell. Labour's relative performance were in those areas were weak for, for a number of elections before there was actually a local competitiveness that enabled the Conservatives to, to capitalise. And this is why the Lib Dems are very excited about some of these blue wall seats, because they're competitive in them in a way that they weren't before. Now, the problem there is, if you're the Conservatives say, OK, we want to refocus back on our core vote, the problem is that for the past seven years, the post-Brexit Conservative Party has almost made a, a kind of virtue of hostility to these kinds of voters. We don't want to be the party of posh North London professionals. We don't want to be the party of the new elites and the old elites and the stock market in the city. Well, that's not going to go down very well in the gravel drives of Surrey, is it? (laughs) You've now got to sort of turn around and say, oh, you know all that stuff we've been saying for seven years and we kept electing leaders that said it. We didn't mean any of it. We are friends with them now. (laughs) I I think Rob's making a really interesting point because the 2019 
Tory vote was was incredibly motivated because of Corbyn. Yeah. Right. And, and Brexit and, as well. Well, part of it was, I mean, I'm, I'm in Westminster. We represent a certain wing of the Conservative Party. And so I try to sort of, you know, challenge myself a bit because everybody that I'm sort of talking to, you know, thinks like me, largely. But I think the, the, motiva- the motivating factor was Corbyn in 2019. And I think that if there's a core vote strategy, you need something that's motivating because it's the apathy that's going to get the Tories in the core vote. And I think that's the thing that they're going to have to worry about if they do go there. But there are very few, it feels like on the trend, gains to be made in those in those weakening red wall seats if Labour's back. Yeah, because as as, we, as you mentioned, Rob, about how the way that in 2015 the Lib Dem vote created in the southwest and the Tories held their position and took those seats. In 2019, it was the Labour vote that collapsed in the Midlands and the North that allowed the Tories to come through. If that vote returns somewhat without Corbyn being on the ballot paper, without Brexit being on the ballot paper, without Boris Johnson's popularity being on the ballot paper. Is there a path, therefore, for the Conservatives to hold on to those seats in that point? Or is, if that was the high point, you know, they're going to come down from that now? I think it will be very hard for them if the current alignment holds with Labour doing much, much better with leave-leaning uh, voter groups, because then we will expect big swings in the red wall. And a lot of these seats will run will won quite narrowly. However, there is one card left to play for the Conservatives, one potential source of hope, although it could turn into a source of despair, depending on what happens. And that is the Brexit party. There's a mm. big set of red wall seats that did not fall for the Conservatives last time because the Brexit party split the Leave vote. Now, Nigel Farage likes to spin this as, oh, we won voters that wouldn't ever have voted Conservative. There's no, really not much evidence for that. The vast majority of Brexit party voters said that their second choice was definitely the Get Brexit Done party. It's pretty common sense that that would be the case. And we estimated when we did the, the analysis of this for, for the election book that, that maybe 20 to 30 Labour MPs, including some quite big figures like Ed Miliband, Yvette Cooper, were saved by Nigel Farage and his Brexit party. Now, if they don't stand next time, there's a bunch of very conservative, sympathetic voters who are suddenly in play. That may help the Conservatives in some of the red wall seats because there were Brexit candidates in some of the seats they captured too. It may provide an additional source of votes. But this could become a source of despair, of course, if Farrows himself reappears and starts putting Brexit party candidates up in all those Conservative seats where they didn't have candidates last time around. Because then you get the opposite dynamic. A bunch of Tory voters will head to the exit who might not otherwise have left the party. And it becomes even harder to defend, not just seats in the Red Wall heartlands, but seats all over the place. Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? The the Labour's majority in those seats was smaller than the amount of votes that the Brexit party got last time out. And so it's it's always been interesting to see whether in those five years, whether they can win some of those back around and where those are going to go. That's been kind of the issue, isn't it, for Labour? Just just finally then, before we start to wrap up, you mentioned the, the learnings, potentially, that a conservative party, a chastened conservative party might get if it loses these three by-elections. Obviously, we're more than six months past Rishi Sunak outlining his five priorities. Spoiler alert, they're not all going particularly well. Uh, <laughs> this morning, as we recall on Thursday, you know, growth was negative for, for, for May and overall has been flat for the past three months, so that one's not doing well. NHS backlogs, you know, we're in the middle of a doctor's strike that's getting worse. The stop the boats has been, you know, despite him lauding a, a drop in the boats, obviously has been a huge uplift in the past couple of weeks. So it's very difficult. Do you think that if they do lose these seats, that they'll see that as a time to correct that course? We heard this week that maybe Jeremy Hunt wants to set out more priorities once these ones are done. But are these ones going to get done, you know, in, in, in that year? And do you think that it'll, it'll allow for a change of course? Or do you think that they'll have to stick with it? Because Sunak has obviously bet the farm kind of on, on getting these done. I think he's going to have to modify 
for sure because the inflationary pressures that are coming means that he is unlikely to meet his target on inflation uh, by the end of the year. And therefore I, the growth and the debt ones are going to be... Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and the debt's only going to get worse as a consequence of where international interest rates are and where people are expecting the government to borrow because those are all very difficult decisions that are coming down the track mm. as well. And, you know, even when he spends all this money, he doesn't really get the thanks for it, as no, we're seeing no. um, on, on the, in the electoral picture. So you know, there's not much uplift for him in in this either. So perhaps thinking about modifying some of these five, I mean, I don't know, you can turn it into 10, three, whatever the number's (laughs) going to be, of kind of things that he needs to complete. And it's it's not unheard of in Westminster that people turn, you know, move the goalposts around (laughs) slightly. But I think that what's going to be interesting about this as well is that the more he sort of flounders on these tests that he's essentially set for himself the more it actually exposes how difficult government is going to be. And I think if this trend, you know, continues and strengthens for Keir Starmer, actually what's going to happen is that he's going to come under a lot more pressure to try and sort of offer and proffer solutions yeah. and talk about what he and Rachel Reeves are going to do as the you know the top two in the team. Yeah, it kind of brings that into focus, doesn't it, of what, what Labour's uh, alternative it, is. In, in the commercial world, internationally, people are now looking at them as it's a foregone conclusion that he is going to be the next Prime Minister. And I think that that pressure is also going to come down. So we're going to see a bit more evenness, I think, over the next period until the general election of wanting to see what the opposition's got as well. Final thoughts from you then, Rob? Yeah, well, five priorities. I just looked them up again just to make sure I knew what they all were. Um, <laughs> oh, you don't have them written down. You have them written down on your computer there to, to see it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, just he's not on even a very charitable reading on course to hit any of them right now. Yeah. Um, but he might well shift, shift the goalposts to make it sound like he's doing making progress towards them or some such like. But I think that kind of misses the point in a sense is that he's decided to make these the five salient performance indicators for his government. They're not going to do very well against any of these indicators. But even if they made some progress towards them, voters will judge based on how they feel about these issues. Do they think that the small boats issue is going away? Doesn't look like it. Do they think the economy is doing better? Doesn't look like it. Do they think the NHS is doing better? Seems unlikely given the, the current situation. Ultimately, all of those are a sort of, well, you know, if you think things are getting better, re-elect me. If you don't, uh, try somebody else. The, the, the classic Ronald Reagan line you know are you better off than you were four years ago five years ago I don't think many people on the current trends are going to be saying yes to that and I think it is true that at some point scrutiny is going to fall on the opposition but the lesson from elections here and everywhere else in times gone by is that if you get into a situation of declining public services and a struggling economy incumbents always struggle because voters judge that they they blame the guy at the desk with yeah. the buck stops hair written on it, and they, they they punish that person. Now, if Starmer is then unable to achieve improvement once he's in office, he could find the polls turn against him very quickly. He could see a big slump in his numbers quite early on, and it could get very challenging very quickly. But I'm, I'm less convinced that greater scrutiny of what Labour might do will actually have much impact on the polling ahead of the election, because ultimately this is going to be an election about judging the incumbent, not about judging what the opposition might do. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day newsletters by clicking the link on our homepage. Thanks to my guests, Salma Shah and Rob Ford. Thanks to all again for listening. Please subscribe, read your podcast and leave us a review. 
If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.